Welcome to the Dauntless Grace Exchange. I'm Megan. And I'm Deidre. And today we have a very dear friend with us. Ronnie Rock is going to be joining us. She is, a, I would say, an internet friend that we have since met in person a few times, gotten a few in-person hugs from her uh, over the last nine years. I'm going to hand the mic back to Megan to just give us a brief bio for Ronnie, and then we're going to let Ronnie speak for herself. And you'll all be so blessed to hear her wisdom and warmth. So Ronnie Rock weaves themes of transformative hope and grace into everything she shares on page and stage. I love that. That's a great sentence. Okay. She's an author, speaker, and mentor offering honest encouragement and gut level wisdom about topics ranging from leadership and long road faith to discovering your God-crafted design and purpose. She leads marketing and special initiatives for Orphan Outreach, a global nonprofit restoring hope for orphan and vulnerable children. Ronnie writes regularly for Joyful Life magazine and her book, One Woman Can Change the World, Reclaiming Your God-Designed Influence and Impact Right Where You Are, is available wherever books are sold, and we will definitely link that in our show notes. An Oklahoma gal by birth, Ronnie now lives in the Texas Hill Country with her husband Brad and rescue pup Pearl, not far at all from her son and his family. Her favorite place to connect is on Instagram, and you can also find more of her writing on her website. Ronnie... She's also an Enneagram four, and I affectionately call her my start mama, which is kind of a long-standing inside joke, but welcome. Hello. I'm so excited. And thank you for liking that first word, being a marketing chick. I always love it when somebody goes, oh, I like the way those words are formed because I go, there's my gift. Yay. <laughs> it's a great sentence. We have themes of transformative hope and grace into everything she shares on page and stage. That's that is, that is who I am, even in the darkest times, right? We have these themes within us, within our hearts and our souls that are higher than a life stage, higher than the conversations going on around us, higher than our vocation or hobbies or interests. And man, that gut level gritty hope that goes to war on our behalf, that fights on our behalf, that we don't have to conjure, but is there to offer refreshing. It's just, I can't not write about hope and I can't not talk about the grace of the Lord. And when folks stop me down, they're like, yes, he's God of grace, but you know, he's also a God of justice. He's also God holy. And I go, and that's what makes grace so incredible and so amazing is that he lavishes that love and that grace on us. Even when we know deep down inside who we are, how we think, how we feel and the same level of grace that we want bestowed on us. Maybe we need to start praying that God will help us and help our hearts stretch to bestow that same grace on everybody else. And that's my tiny sermon for today. I mean, I, th- I think we're done. I think we can wrap up. And- <laughs> <laughs> that felt pretty good to me. I've got chills and I'm about to start. Amen. And yeah. <laughs> it's so yeah. true though. It, every way that you present yourself, whether that's on social media or in person or through your work is very, um, tender and uh, filled with humility. So that's something that I think will be a gift to anyone who's listening today. So I'm already crying. Sorry. If it's kind of like my gift when I'm around you, I just start crying. It just seems to be <laughs> everybody the does. They just get in my presence and then just the tears start. I, I, I own stock in Kleenex just to make sure <laughs> I don't. 
Now, I promise if you're with me, you won't just cry. I'll cry. We'll all cry and then we'll eat bread. <laughs> I I think it's funny. I do remember the first time we met, which was um, about eight years ago. I want to say it just, it just happened like a few couple of weeks ago, eight years ago um, in Atlanta. No. Yeah. First place. Seven years ago. I think. I don't know. No, I think it was Atlanta first. Maybe it was Atlanta first and then Atlanta and then Austin. Yeah. Yeah. In St. Louis and Tulsa. <laughs> we just we just find each other on the side of the road somewhere, like, hey, it's you. Hug. It's all good. Folks are gonna freak out though, the whole like we met them on the internet. Because kids, seriously, <laughs> don't try this at home. But we were all. Um, blessed. And I know that that word gets appropriated all the time, but I'm so serious. It was a gift. Um, uh, an author and speaker, and I really believe a mentor to so many, John A. Cuff started Facebook group in conjunction with one of his books. And, and all he wrote was like, you know, adventurers wanted bring a passport and a machete. And for whatever reason, all of us said, Oh, I, I knew I had the passport. I still don't own a machete, but we all signed up and then we all connected. And there was something honestly divine about that group. And we, that was back in 2013 happened in the summer of 2013. And so many of us are personal friends, like pray for each other, cry for each other, hold each other close guard each other and safeguard each other. And all it started was like a whole idea that, that um, idea that fear fears community. And so we are meant for community. We're meant for connection. And I, I'm, I, to this day, I'm so thankful for that group. Cause I even look at where I am in my own life. I look at friends that I have like you guys that I have met in real life, human person and have hugged and want to see again. Mm -hmm. And man, that's a, that's a gift beyond measure really is. It's actually ridiculous how many podcast guests we've had that we've met online. And we always kind of throw that caveat out there. Like, it's not weird. We promise. I mean, it's a little weird, but also it's not weird. These people are real and amazing. And we've slept on people's in their spare bedrooms of people we had never met before in real life. And maybe don't try that one at home, but it's, I don't know, you're right. It's such a gift between the John A. Cuff group. And then another one that I, we both landed in kind of separate gin hat maker groups uh, about mm-hmm. a year after that have formed some of my closest friendships. So, yeah, no, it's, it is good. And in this day and time as scattered about as we all are um, and the sense of neighborhood and community looks very different for so many of us. Um, I think it's okay. You may not, there's no way that you can, like I have what, I have several thousand people connected to me on social media. Can I have friendships with all of them? Absolutely not. Can I be um, encouraged by them? Can I be inspired by them or have my, or be provoked by them to, dive deeper into a topic or whatever. Absolutely. Um, But can I have some real live human folks that have captured my heart and are folks that have become safe spaces? 
Yeah, you can find you can find them on the interwebs. You really can. <laughs> I love that. Uh, that uh, fear and community component. That's so good. That that you know, it just can't live. Fear doesn't live once you're experiencing true connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk to us a little bit too about what that looks like in your life. Like just as you, I know you talked about the beginning of your book. Even you describe a little bit about how you set off on a mission, but then. God intersects that and you start living it in community and, you know, just what that has done in your life, maybe some principles for a few of us who are a little more headstrong and less willing to let the Lord speak to us individually when we sometimes might need to be hit over the head to receive that truth, but you present it so beautifully. Oh, he still lovingly bops me all the time. (laughs) You know, he does. He's not abusive. I promise you nothing of that, but he's, but he does give me like the, hey, hey girl, hey girl, with the nudge. Yeah. Hey girl, shh, pay attention. Um, I I feel like in so many ways, um, I was I was raised in a culture in the United States in an upper middle class home, um, in a predominantly um, Anglo community. Yay me! Um, I and I I fit the bill. I mean I blonde hair, fair complected. I, I say I'm an island girl because all of my ancestors were like from the UK in that area. So um, I can't get a, I, I'm like, I'm really oatmeal. I am really oatmeal in my little life. Um, it was filled with all kinds of mess and muck. But at the same time, I was afforded a lot of opportunity and privilege and everything. And then grew up from the time I was a little kid with that bootstrapping. You can do it. You are a promise. You're a possibility. You can do anything you set out to do. You always wanted to be the biggest, bestest, brightest, boldest, whatever. And so even as I fell headlong in love with Jesus Christ after my 21st birthday, um, I still carried with me, I just kind of carried that in with me, that oh, I love Jesus. He loves me as I am the pieces of me that I'd never want anybody else to see. But of course, Jesus has this, he certainly has a North American mindset too, that he wants us all to be successful. We're King's kids. So I moved that mindset into then into the work. I work um, in the corporate sector and then into the nonprofit sector of Hey, it is metrics and measurements and results. And so, man, the first time I led a short-term mission trip to Guatemala, I had it all planned. I had spreadsheets. I had duffel bags filled with all kinds of crap that we just knew was going to transform the lives of folks and uh, went to a children's home and we had a big plan and we were going to preach Jesus and we're going to do all this stuff. And those kids just blew us over with how quickly they were learning things from us. And of course the community, they were, the kids from majority were um, orphaned. Most of them orphaned socially. They'd been removed by the court system and placed in uh, this children's home, either temporarily or for long-term, but poor community, the home didn't have a lot of the basics. So of course we, 
we walk in, I'm walking in like, oh, so sad. What they really need is I had it all planned of all the things that I thought that they needed. And do they need, do we, those of us who love Jesus, do we want others to fall in love with him too? Absolutely. But do we often define that in ways that are not meaningful and uh, meaningful and purposeful, no matter where you live? Uh, we, a lot of times we define it by our own neighborhood of, well, this is how Jesus looks in my neighborhood. And therefore this is how he should look in yours. So I did, we walked in, had all the stuff. We got done with our first day of activities. We're thinking the kids are so like, we are such great teachers that they are learning. Did we bother to ask if it was a Christian home? No. Did we bother to ask that they had devotionals every morning already and probably knew more than we did about Jesus? No. We didn't because they were poor kids in another in a third world country. So we get to the end of that day. I'm, I go up and ask the ladies because I'm feeling pretty good about us. So we're going to leave, you know, to go have our nice dinner. And I asked the ladies there that are that it's two sisters um, that run the, this home together. And I said, hey. Thanks for a great day. Is there anything we can bring you back from the city when we come back? Thank you. I don't know what I thought they were going to say. I honestly don't know. They're like, oh yeah, deodorant. Can you? I don't know. But um, they got really still and real quiet. And then they said, you know, we, we don't have any milk. Now we had brought duffel bags full of school supplies, not asking if they needed school supplies. We just assumed they did. Uh, we brought duffel bags full of lice shampoo because, of course, every kid in, uh, in an impoverished community has to have lice. And so we knew that we were coming to fix them. Um, yeah, they needed none, none of what we brought. They needed our time and they needed our attention and our presence. So we left. I got in the bus with my people and started bawling and said, wow, guys. They, they don't have any milk. And we found out that they had not had milk in a couple of weeks, that they had not had meat or any kind of protein like that in a couple of months. And so we pulled all of our money together at a grocery store. It brought powdered milk. So it, it was shelf stable and they could use it uh, over the course of time, brought this product called Encamperina, which was a it's a real nutritious, it's like Ovaltine in the United States, if anybody remembers that, but it's like amped. It's so full of vitamins and stuff. So we got that, got some meat for them, brought it back and brought it back um, and handed that and our pride to them and said, would you just teach us? And that was the beginning of a road of understanding that my responsibility in this world, whether it is about the gospel in the Jesus loves you, um, God wrapped in flesh here, and that every every picture that we've ever painted, the bridge that gets you know all of those things uh, about salvation and about eternity to the parts of the gospel that are about the present. If we believe that we are somehow the fixers or the solution in that we are sorely wrong. We are sojourners, fellow folks. And the most important thing we could do 
in this world, I think, is to shut up and listen first and to understand culture and to understand um, perspective and to understand the person that flesh and and blood that is sitting next to you. They are not a project. Mm -hmm. They are not an activity because they're different than you does not make them wrong or bad or anything. It makes them a fellow sojourner and they are also made in the image and likeness of Christ, whether or not you like that. Mm. And the most important thing we can do first is to sit and listen and then allow God to do the work in us to be able to respond in love and in grace and in care and to not try to take it all on and grab it and figure out the plan, but to be a participant in that person's life, right? A journeyman in that person's life. And then to be the witness of the change that happens in their life that you didn't really have anything to do with because change is happening in your life too. So. So good. I think I, um, maybe this is me being an Enneagram one. Maybe it's just growing up in a more evangelical culture or maybe it's being an American or maybe it's all of those things combined. But I, I probably had more answers to the world's problems when I was 19 or 20 than I do today at 46 because I've Mm -hmm. learned that he's not requiring us to show up with an answer. I know. And how liberating is that? It says in scripture that Christ it's for freedom. that Christ has set us free. And yet we don't even, that freedom is like off our shoulders. We, it's not a burden for us to carry, to figure it all out for everybody else. It's for us to just walk the road with somebody. And then if we truly trust that God is who he says he is, that uh, his spirit, his holy presence is like in us and he, and we have ears that can hear, then we should have that confidence that, that, you know what? I don't have to walk in having all the answers. Can I use my brain once I understand? And can I, can I build, can I build a, a little bit of a plan? Yeah. For somebody else, just so we're not all just going headlong, but yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I never like lose my brain in the midst of following, um, a heart that is filled with his, his grace and love. But, but we, man, we don't have to have all of the plan. And, and I, I, when I said I fell headlong, in love with Jesus, that was at a charismatic non-denominational church. So I was, I was a big time evangelical coming into this whole thing. Um, do I call myself an evangelical anymore? Yes. If you actually use the right definition for it, there you I go. am. I still believe um, in the power of professing. I think that that is a beautiful thing to live my life and for my mouth and what comes out of my mouth to be in line with what's in my heart and all of those things. So evangelical being evangelical in the right sense, absolutely. What it has sadly kind of 
morphed and manufactured into? Not so much. I don't even like to call myself a Christian. I want somebody else to look at me and say, oh my gosh, I see that she looks like Christ. But for me to go, yep, I'm a Christian with, I don't know, that I, I just don't feel like that's, that's a moniker that I'm supposed to put on myself when I see that in scripture, that was a moniker that people called someone else because they could see Jesus alive and well in that person. And they're like, oh my gosh, she looks like Jesus. He looks like Jesus. So for me to carry it like a badge or like a name on a club, like if you know the handshake, you can get in. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I don't like that. And um, yeah. And then of course, then you wrap in all my, my Enneagram for feelings and all that kind of stuff. And of course, everything that I'm going to say is probably going to be absolutely filled with things that remind you that you, um, that you're not, you are a soul, an eternal soul that just happens to be wrapped in a bag of bones right now. And my bag of bones keeps getting baggier. (laughs) Feel that. (laughs) gets a little harder to unbend <laughs> every day. I know. I, I, I work as hard and my derriere continues to find new places to land upon my thighs. So I'm not sure it's bad. <laughs> um, well, I think as a four, a fellow four with you to not have to have all the answers to things is liberating. And I see that as soon as you say that, like panic rushes into Deidre's eyes a little bit. She's leaning into that new freedom, I believe, but also knowing that, wait, there isn't a right answer necessarily all the time is a little bit daunting. Mm -hmm. So in light of knowing that, I'm going to ask you a question where it sounds like you might need to have a right answer and there probably isn't one, but what is your philosophy then on short-term missions trips as, you know, we've both done our fair share of short-term missions trips then, and you know, at 16, going into the Dominican Republic, thinking the same way you did that first time, you know, like, oh, we're here to save all these little kids. And then we walk away feeling more changed, but at, at what expense to the community that we were in? I just yeah. wonder what your thoughts are. I do have an answer for that. Okay. I actually do, because I work for an organization. We work in eight countries around the world. And one of the ways that we connect now, we we don't rely on mission trips. We are not a mission sending organization like uh, like some others that that is their primary uh, ministry. Ours is not, but we do child sponsorships. We have a lot of churches and individuals that invest in the lives of kids. And so mission trips, which um, if I could if I could rename them, I would because the word mission trip gets bad, gets a bad rap. And, uh, and then also there are certain countries that if you use the word mission, it is aligned with things that are illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are actually certain countries that we work in that we're very cautious even about how we, the adjectives and that we use to identify the teams that are in country, because we are not there to break the law. We are there to support um, people who are on the ground doing the work. And that is one thing I do. Do I believe that there is a place for um, a short-term, for short-term visits? Um, 
trips and things to different countries. I do still to this day. Um, I was in Russia in February for five days, a little too short, but my time there, my time there was not to fix a kid. It was not to do anything. It was to offer encouragement and respite to those who care for kids. And that's what I really think Mm -hmm. that if we look at, if we look at short-term mission trips in the correct light, where you are not going to there to fix something, to do anything that you really can't, but you were there to step into a culture that is not your own, to be a learner. So your heart can be opened and changed to not get in the way of anybody, to not take a job that belongs to somebody else or anything, but you were there. I really feel that the best place Um, I I liken it to when you go to somebody's house, right? You go visit a family member's house. You don't walk in, rearrange the furniture, tell them that you don't like the way they're cooking, change and start to discipline their kids in a way that's not appropriate because you don't know them that well. What you normally do when you're the guest in somebody else's house is that you're looking for ways to serve that host, right? You're looking for ways to make Can I give you a meal so you can kick back and relax? And so that's what we do in a lot of trips is it's our opportunity to help those boots on the ground caregivers. It gives them a little rest. It gives them some encouragement. It allows us to, um, to just step in, come alongside, listen to what they need and us to bend the knee and be the servants for them. And there are times that I've been on trips and have not seen a kid one because my time has been focused on serving servants, Yeah, you know? And so that's, it's my personal opinion. I think that um, if we don't, and we don't need to go where we're not wanted or needed. If somebody, we say, oh, we want to go and visit. And somebody goes, not a good time. We don't have a structure in place or whatever and stay out, stay out. Um, the old that, you know, I, I've read when helping hurts. I believe there's, there's a lot of great understanding about what it means to be a good neighbor and mission trips is a piece of that puzzle being a good neighbor. It's like, how am I going to be a good neighbor to you? How am I going to serve you well? How am I going to show love to you? Um, Can you dig into that just a little, like just say a little bit more about being a good neighbor and maybe also um, loving your enemies when we were talking before the podcast. So what do those things look like for us? Sure. Well, being a good neighbor, um, I know we use the, we use the Samaritan, the story of the Samaritan right? A lot. Uh, and want to believe that we're the Samaritan. I feel like more often than not, we're the guy beaten up and laying on the side of the road, just hoping that somebody might love us instead of tell us why we're on the side of the road. And maybe the three steps to making us never be on the side of the road again and stuff. And so I think if you look at what neighboring is, neighboring is once again, it's sitting with somebody, 
It's, it's, it is communing with that person. That's what communion means is common union. It is finding that opportunity to have a good conversation with somebody else. It is listening enough to understand what the real needs might be. And, um, and then knowing, you know what, I may not be equipped to meet that need, but I also might have another neighbor that I know that can might meet that need because what neighboring does is helps build community. And so again, in short-term mission trips, when I'm going to Russia or Kenya or India or wherever, I'm not going to, to make significant changes in a child's life. More often than not, I'm going, the kids are going to call me auntie and they're going to say she, she dances funny, but she loves to dance. We're going to have meaningful conversations, but the time is really invested in those who are the ones that are boots on the ground 24 seven. I'm showing up as a guest for a week and I don't want to disrupt the life that's happening. Instead, I want to, I want to contribute to it. I want to be the neighbor that comes by and says, Hey, you know what? I see that you're digging. Let me take the shovel for just a little bit. I'll do it for you. Why don't you go in and get some lemonade, take a rest. You've been working hard. So, and then the whole thing about enemies. And I will say in this, uh, in in this season in particular, um, and it's been this way for, I don't know. I guess, I guess the world, we've always had folks that we eat probably each individually perceive as somebody who might be an enemy. I feel like over the past few years, those, the numbers have increased Uh, and what, how we define an enemy. The sad thing is so often now, at least in our culture, we define an enemy as anybody who doesn't look like us, think like us, act like us. Yeah. But when I look at, um, when I look at scripture and I look at how Jesus loved, and I know that we all perceive, for example, Judas to be Jesus's enemy. Judas was with the turd that, you know, for a bag of silver, which would have bought him maybe a decent house and some land and a little bit of security for a season. It wouldn't have, when we think bag of silver, I think we think about like those little chocolates that are wrapped in gold. I'm like, oh, it's a little. I mean, it would have been a decent income for him for about a year or so. Um, but we all look at him like, Judas, so bad. But you're like, wait a second. Judas sat at the table. Jesus washed his feet. Judas heard everything. And Jesus never condemned him, never said, Judas, you're going to burn in hell. What you doing to me? Mm-hmm. Never said any of those words to him. A person he knew was a known enemy. Jesus, if you look even at the way uh, when the Roman government came against him and when they opted to, um, when they opted to end his life in a way that only the absolute worst criminals against Rome, right? That was crucifixion. It's like, there was the way you kill people. And then there was crucifixion and Jesus got the worst end of the deal. And instead he's saying, you know what, forgive them. And he is making sure that family is connected and all those things. Um, 
But when I, I look now at our days, and especially those of us who say that we love Jesus. So if you don't love Jesus, you don't even have to listen to me right now. But if you say you love Jesus, we need to have a talk about your mouth and your heart and your mind. Because too often we are, we are divisive, not other people. We are divisive. We are labeling enemies that are not enemies. We are not taking the time to love well, to lay down our arms, to invite people to the table, to learn and to grow and to allow the selfish parts of us to be shattered. So we can actually um, make, make a real difference in the world around us. And so when I look at the word enemy, because you know, you always think it's like, oh, enemy, that's the, that's the jerk that's doing this or whatever. Um, when I look at the word enemy and see that it also means cantankerous and um, contrary, guys, I'm on the list. There are days that I am just a turd. <laughs> I am the, and, and to somebody, I am an enemy. To somebody, I'm an enemy, whether or not that is an overt thing because they ideal ideologically or whatever, but to somebody out there, I'm dangerous. They perceive me as dangerous. And, um, and I think instead of us viewing people as enemies, we have got to lay down our arms. We have got to say, no, wait a second. The person that I view, that is the person that, um, which right now um, and what's happening in the world around us, I'm sure we all have a short list of folks that we would love to, nothing more than for harm to come to them. And to have to say, Lord, that person, the person in my mind, that is the worst person I could think about is Imago Day, is made in your image and likeness and has every right to John 3, 16 and 17 as I do. They are as worthy or unworthy, depending upon your doctrinal perspective of John 3, 16 and 17 as me. And um, I don't know who quoted it. Somebody a long time is like, when you get to know somebody, you get to know them by name, get to know their story. All of a sudden, things that you hate start to fade away. The prejudices start to fade away and all of that. And so, yeah. So that's how even to work in countries in which they are hostile to the gospel, Mm -hmm. you can step in and say, okay, Lord, instead of me coming in thinking, "Mm, I'm going to figure out a tricky way to get Jesus in here. Instead, it's like, Lord, I, I'm going to, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quiet myself and all of my cool thoughts. And I'm going to ask you to whisper in my ear and tell me about the heart of the people that I'm with. Because your way is healing. Your way is redemptive. Your way is restorative. My way in and of itself is bull in a china closet. That's right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's so good. Well, just, just even the piece that you brought all of this 
talk today with is just kind of settled my heart. I've been racing around in a, you know, work day, kid stuff, all the things that make life go on. And I sat here and just kind of started exhaling all of a sudden. Finally, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot to do that earlier today. Thank you for making <laughs> me just exhale a little bit. You just have a way. I know you're an agent of hope, but I also believe that you bring a lot of peace wherever you go. So if you were a bull in a China shop, God's done a really good work in you <laughs> because that's not what I get from you at all ever anymore. Yeah. I could just listen to you. It is so soothing and you bring so much perspective when you talk. So thank you so much. And that wraps up another episode of the Dauntless Grace Exchange. You can follow us on social media to stay connected. We are on Instagram at Dauntless Grace Ministries. Our Facebook page is Dauntless Grace, and you can join the conversation in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash team DGM. For more about the Enneagram, visit our website at dauntlessgrace.org for coaching and training opportunities. And you can follow me on Instagram at Enneagram Megan. And be sure to check out our website for more information about today's podcast at dauntlessgrace.org.